Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor of the TLS, and our usual host, Theola Naduzzi, is away, so I've strong-armed our fiction editor, Toby Lishtig, to join me. He was unable to find a decent excuse, so I'm delighted that he's here with us today. Hello, Toby, how are you doing? Hello, I'm fine. I noticed you say decent excuse, as if I had been scrabbling around for some kind of excuse <laughs> which didn't quite measure up. But, it's uh, true, you didn't offer any excuse. No, I, no excuse at all. <laughs> I, 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 I approach this with open arms. Splendid. What have you been up to? You've been reading anything good recently? Yeah, I've been, oh, I've been reading. I've been watching. Um, I am currently reading um, a really interesting book by Pankash Mishra called Run and Hide. Um, it's his first novel in 20 years. Mm. He's obviously um, a very important political thinker and essayist. Um, he has written novels in the past, but not for a very, very long time. Um, it's a bit of a sort of a newsflash because it's not out until later in February. So sorry. Oh gosh. Um, okay, that's a bit can't. of a tease yeah. for us all. Yeah. Sorry, I've only just started that. I'm about okay. pages in, but it looks totally brilliant. And it's about well, it's sort of it's partly about uh, growing up um, very poor in India and and doing very well at school and jumping through all the hoops, and then sort of toggles back between that kind of period in the eighties and uh, sort of a, a current period in which three of the characters have clearly become extremely rich um and apparently corrupted but i can't say much more but there you go there's i'm, I'm wetting everyone's appetite you really um, are yeah that sounds great it is it's really it's really really good he writes really, really brilliantly um yeah. and i saw june last night every time know, people say that i think of the month and i think well how how did you do that <laughs> no you mean dune with a d yes june. What, june. what did you think I, yes i saw june last night not the sort of thing i tend to see I, those kind of like huge hollywood epics I'm, I'm not even very into star wars so i know it'll be absolutely aghast to hear that lucy I've, i'm, I'm you know that already silently. About me. i yeah. know but anyway i i did massively enjoy it i mean i think our reviewer mmo and called it a masterpiece of cinematography and it, it just looks totally stunning um, yeah. so I, I hugely enjoyed it for what it was on those terms it's, it's a bit politically troubling isn't it i don't I can't remember have you seen it 
Yeah, I've seen it and read yeah. the book. The book is also politically troubling, isn't it? I mean, yes. Frank Herbert was a, was a, I mean, it depends where you are politically, but he's pretty right wing. And there's a lot of, I was, I was interested well, to see the extent to which Hollywood was going to kind of just ride with the kind of the patriarchy and the lineage and the, you know, the kind of... To uh, be fair, there's a lot of matriarchy in there as well. There's descendant of a long line of witches. Yes, there is, but it's still about the boy. Yeah, there's all sorts of weirdnesses in that. I thought the film was dealt with that quite well, dealt with it quite straight. I mean, as our reviewer said, it's going to run into problems because the hero, if you want to call him that, is is not a hero. And yeah, yeah, and that really... sort of... For- Yes, we, we sort of, you know, we don't actually learn the extent of that in this, in this part one, isn't it? Dune, mm, this, yeah. this Dune that's currently out. But yeah, he becomes far more troubling a figure, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, he does. I absolutely loved the the hardware, the ships, the ornithopters were brilliant. Yeah. What about you? Well, I finished uh, Pachinko, which I thought I picked up at random, but then you told me that lots of people are reading it. So perhaps it's having yeah. a moment it is. five my, years my, later. My partner's currently reading it, having having had it pressed into her hands by a friend who also, uh, you know, who has a couple of friends who are reading it. Nothing mm. to do with book groups and nothing. It, it seems to be having a moment. And as you mentioned in the previous podcast, you know, you just, you did sort of pick it out at random, but I've, I've always meant to read it. Um, and I, I will certainly join the train soon. Yeah, it's very rich and very detailed and very... Um, just very absorbing um yeah it's really it's I, I thought it was really good it was a very a very absorbing world rather I mean rather sad in the end but mm. um you know that's um I think that's that that's the story that, that they were telling right I'm going to have to tell you what's coming up on this week's show. We're going to go from macro to micro because we're going to talk about the mystery and the magic of the lighted window seen from the outside. And also the new novel from the Harlequin of High Irony, Dave Eggers. Also, Wives of Bath and Wilsdon from Chaucer to Zadie Smith. But first, we're taking a trip to one of the most influential towns in America, where you could say the American War of Independence started. And then, 50 odd years after that, another struggle for independence sprang up and has arguably never stopped. The struggle for individualism, self-expression, affinity with nature, along with a deep dislike of organized society, religion, government, you name it. We're talking about the town of Concord, Massachusetts, and specifically about the transcendentalists who lived and worked there, most notably Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. A new history of Concord by Robert A. Gross has come out, and Mark Ford, the poet and academic at University College London, guides us expertly through it, so we're delighted he can talk to us today. Mark, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. So you start your piece with Thoreau directly addressing the townsfolk of Concord um, in Walden, his, his book about his retreat from life, as it were. Uh, what, what is he saying to the townspeople of Concord? Not very nice things, really. Um, uh, if they read his book, which they didn't all do, uh, they would have been rather upset. Um, Thoreau famously um, lived in a hut that he uh, that was a couple of miles from Concord, built on the uh, near Walden Pond, and he built the hut himself. It was on land owned by his friend and mentor, Ralph Waldo L- Emerson. And uh, he spent two years, two months and two days uh, in this hut, uh, living um, off the land, or he used to go into town to um, uh, get his washing done and have meals and so on. So he wasn't a complete hermit. But his notion was that modern material life was dreadful, uh, that all the inhabitants of Concord 
who are losing touch with their spiritual uh, or imaginative beings uh, because they were weighed down by, by possessions, by land, by clothes, even by food. I think there was a, an element of sorrow which was extremely ascetic and self-denying. Uh, even a nice meal was something or a cup of coffee. Uh, he thought talks about how da- why dash the day by having a cup of coffee. Yeah, <laughs> how to start of- the day without a cup of coffee is more of a question. So he felt that they were imprisoned in their kind of material objects and their st- sense of status. Uh, and he wanted to liberate them from that. So he wrote this book, Walden, uh, in which he describes his life uh, as a semi-hermit uh, in the hope, uh, though I don't know how how earnestly he had this hope that they would somehow be illuminated by his example and would learn to lead a spiritual life um, um, and somehow escape from modern capitalism, which in this book, Robert Gross uh, rather persuasively says is really uh, kicking in in these sort of 1830s and 1840s. Um, and it's at this time that the capitalist model is really becoming the, the dominant paradigm for so many of the citizens of America, but in, in, in he's focusing on the ways in which uh, the inhabitants of Concord experienced it. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of haranguing them and, and he's also trying to wake them up. He calls, them, he calls himself a Chanticleer. He's kind of saying, come on, you know, get out of your stupor, that kind of thing. Yes, he's saying that they're spiritually uh, asleep uh, and he wants to wake them up. And in that, although he's doing it in very kind of new terms, he he's actually re re creating what was a, a kind of a dominant trope of the Puritan Puritans who first settled Concord back in 1635 and Puritan preachers were always telling their congregations to wake up not not literally I mean they I'm no <laughs> doubt some fell asleep during their four-hour sermons but um, uh, they were supposed to spiritually come awake and feel themselves rejuvenated and experience a kind of conversion experience and in secular terms Thoreau is replaying that particular rhetoric that you have to wake up to your kind of spiritual inheritance or possibilities because um, uh, you have somehow backslid, you're backsliding, you're failing to uh, live up to your potential because you are conforming to what everyone else around you is doing. Mm -hmm. So the book by Robert Gross, it's an attempt to to look at the people Thoreau was addressing and, and to find out how the place produced this extraordinary circle of people, the transcendentalists. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it, it's a kind of freak that that you happen to get in some ways. You happen to get Emerson, Thoreau, uh, Margaret Fuller, Bronson Alcott, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, <laughs> list goes on. All these terrific writers were, were based there in the sort of 1840s. And what Gross does, and there's about 2,000 people living in Concord from, say, 1825 to 1845, which is the main uh, period in which he's... Um, considering the town's history. And he has um, amazingly tracked down the archives of so many of the residents um, uh, uh, across all walks of life, from kind of labourers, from um, uh, the illustrious citizens, the politicians, the lawyers, uh, pencil makers. There's two pencil makers there, one called um, Munro, who was um, very successful, and one who was also pretty successful. uh, And that was John Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau's father. Mm. So he's he's kind of conjuring up their their lives, isn't he? We've talked about the outlines of transcendentalism. I was wondering if there was anything else we should add to it. And I wanted to ask you what its relation is to religion. It seems like a kind of very dense and complicated relationship it has with religion. 
It, it is. I mean, it, it emerges out of um, uh, European philosophy, particularly the writings of Kant and Coleridge. Uh, they were kind of um, processed by um, Emerson and Thoreau, but uh, they are in some ways used or fused with um, uh, religious idealism. Um, and uh, Emerson, for instance, was um, uh, a Unitarian preacher, and he abandoned that um, uh, in the 1830s because he could he felt that Unitarianism was lacking in zeal, <laughs> that you weren't fervent enough as a Unitarian. And Unitarianism was, as he to use his phrase, corpse cold. <laughs> corpse cold it was somehow inert and it was too polite and reasonable and rational so um emerson particularly wanted a more fervid experience of life um, and it was one that actually distanced him from institutional religion of all kinds that he came to believe that we are all contained the, the sort of potential to be divine within ourselves. And we should experience that divinity in nature um, and through kind of solitude often. It was a rather kind of, um, it, 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 it privileged individualism against mm. community. And that's the kind of um, uh, diagnosis which Gross gives in his book that, the, the, that Emerson uh, and then Thoreau were both in some ways the product of this overall historical movement away from a sense of communal connection and responsibility towards a more kind of individualistic concept um, of life, which could be seen in, 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 as, as going in different directions. On the one hand, it can be seen as underpinning laissez-faire capitalism, the extent to which the individual looks out for him or herself and the rest can go hang. At the same time, it could encourage a kind of understanding or an exploration of one's own spiritual uh, and imaginative potential that you get, say, in Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, which was directly influenced by Whitman's reading of Emerson. So in its, in its way, Emersonianism has become really fundamental to our notions of America and mm. the American dream. It almost sounds a bit like a sensibility as much as a theology or a philosophy, a kind of a very sort of personal sensibility. Does that, would, would you say that would be accurate? Uh, I, I think it is. And it, it, it's a form of idealism, uh, which is interacting with your own sensibility. Uh, so it's an idealism which is disconnected from any particular doctrine or um, belief system. Uh, it's much more a sense of your own, what to use Emerson's term, self-reliance, that mm. too much we take our own interpretations of experience, of our experience and of others' lives from books, from other people at second hand. Um, uh, transcendentalism is saying you can have this ex these experiences firsthand. Imagine you are like Adam and Eve, <laughs> that you are the first people on earth. Um, uh, uh, so at its heart, it is a kind of sense, a longing to have unmediated experience. And that, again, is a religious notion that it's a kind of uh, a, a transference of the Protestant notion, the kind of philosophy of life. And it, you can trace it back through Puritanism all the way back to Luther, if, if that's your bent, that it certainly says that you should experience things on your own terms and not take them from others. And it's it's. It, it was and is actually, it seems to me, a very bold, even a, a revolutionary stance, because on the one hand, it feels very, very modern and anti-capitalist, as you say. Don't have all this stuff, throw away your stuff, live simply among nature, don't worry about um, trappings and, you know, um, conformity. And then on the other, 
as you say, it's the very essence of rugged individualism, no government, no society even really, just you, the individual in the world. That's partly the trouble with it, that it's so vague uh, in terms of its application to life. It, it, it can go either way. It can either go the way that, you know, you should look out, be it get um, look out for yourself as much as possible, get as much money as possible, be as rich as possible, because that's untrammeled individualism. Or it can say that all in, all materialism is corrupting and is d- destroying your spiritual potential. So therefore, you should get rid of all your possessions. So the va- I mean, um, Henry James's father, Henry James's Henry James Senior, called Ralph Waldo Emerson a man without a handle. <laughs> the idea that that his his thought is so evasive and so slippery that self reliance as a concept is so difficult to pin down that it can be interpreted by everyone who reads it about it uh, to, in whatever way they want right okay so 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 you so in that in that sense it's very open to all sorts it is of... very open it is very very open to the interpretation of whoever happens to be reading um the oversoul or um mm. self reliance or the poet or any other of those great essays by Emerson experience is about my favorite terrific, terrific essayist. If you're actually, if you're feeling down at all, I recommend reading some Emerson. Emerson is better than a cup of coffee. He <laughs> um, really does get your pulses racing and your self-belief going. Um, and uh, he's, he's a terrific tonic. When we talk about it, it, it can sound rather kind of, um, rather grandiose and a bit overblown and a bit hectoring, you know, that they're constantly wagging their finger at everybody. But actually, when you when you read it, it's very, very energising. And it does sort of, it's a, it's a bit like Whitman. It does make you want to go and rush out and look at blades of grass and feel fulfilled. It really it really does do, have that effect, doesn't it? It's utterly exhilarating. I mean, I remember reading um, when I was about 19 or 20, Emerson, and I thought of him as a rather staid uh, and dull figure from the, you know, um, but when I read it, I just felt so energized and excited and I still get that kick from him. So um, uh, it does um, s- certainly act as a catalyst for whatever emotions you're feeling and it heightens them. Um, and uh, it, it is. Uh, yeah, I, rec- I mean, Emerson is very optimistic and, and fills you with um, a sense of the potential of life. Thoreau is rather dif- different. He was a much more saturnine and melancholic person who was had a genuinely hermit-like disposition uh, and no one quite worked out what was Thoreau's problem but he clearly sort of had one um, and uh, Walden is much less uplifting although there are very uplifting passages in it but in general his diagnosis uh, is, is less is, is more kind of is more melancholy and saturnine um, and he, he is less of a, a tonic if you're feeling down. Mm. And what was the, um, in terms of historically, what was there a, a transcendentalist position on women and slavery, the Native American population? They were kind of broadly for emancipation generally, weren't they? Broadly, I mean, this is a slightly vexed and in some ways rather awkward issue that, that Emerson, Emerson's kind of enthusiasm and optimism allowed him to avoid taking positions on particular political uh, affairs, certainly in his early career. And this is why um, uh, Herman Melville parodied him in his book, novel called The Confidence Man. He's got a character called Mark Winsome, who can never be pinned down to anything. You ask him for some money because you're starving and he will say, no, it wouldn't be good for your soul to give me give you money <laughs> uh, and that kind of thing. So in some ways, he's a charlatan. Um, but uh, and Emerson sort of he did um, from 1844 onwards 
uh, take up the abolitionist cause. Um, but uh, and Thoreau was a great celebrator of John Brown, the um, hero of Harper's Ferry. Um, uh, uh, and Thoreau went, you know, went went to jail out of civil disobedience, um, uh, not wanted to pay his taxes to support. Uh, an American war that he didn't agree with. So they did take political positions, but they were also rather adept at suggesting that taking the, these political positions um, was a bit, a bit beneath them, that they had kind of higher things on their minds, uh, and also a kind of scepticism about um, day-to-day politics, uh, that somehow that was, was missing the larger spiritual uh, point of life. Right, because that was a bit, it's a bit too sort of... Um quotidian that's that's for other people whereas i'm i'm what, what's the wonderful quote you say of emerson where he, he's a transparent eyeball he, he's out <laughs> being a transparent eyeball <laughs> that's from nature i'm a transparent eyeball yes it's hard to get a transparent eyeball sort of marching in, in your <laughs> in your parade against this or that um and this notion that that the your true individuality your soul was something that that escaped all social signifiers and of course politics is the great social signifier um can be rather irritating if you are doing a kind of social or class analysis of the ways in which people behave. Um, Emerson's insistence that you you should ignore all the all the superficial social political conditioners of your existence and somehow participate in some overflowing oversoul. Um, it, that's fine if you're if you've got a steady income, which he which Emerson had a steady income from the money that he inherited from his first wife who died when she was only 19 and he inherited a very substantial income every year. So he didn't have to worry about um, ways and means too much. Uh, and he could go around being a transparent eyeball when the moment seized him. But I, th- that's a bit of a caricature. He was a very, very hard worker and he promoted his views in, through the Lyceum system and the East Coast and the Midwest um, uh, t- until he became a real sort of superstar uh, of the period and w- was seen as uh, one of the shapers of the of the American identity, and I think at the extent to which we have this concept of the American dream that you can go to America and reinvent yourself or recreate yourself, and that it's it's up to you to fulfil those dreams, um, is actually an Emersonian legacy in some ways. Um, although Emerson is the person who codified the concept of the fluidity of the personality of one's identity was something fluid and unformed, always in progress, never defined, that you could always um, escape previous incarnations of yourself and recreate yourself. Uh, All those American cliches and the way I phrase them were actually part of the transcendental belief system and its legacy to America at large. So um, in the book, um, Gross deals with the, he, he kind of looks at the, the townsfolk and the town, you say, in, in great depth and richness in the first part. And then he looks at, at the twin poles, doesn't he, as you say, Thoreau and Emerson in the second. How does that work? Does that work as a technique? Uh, up to a point, it's really interesting to see Emerson and Thoreau on, in their day to day lives as citizens of, of, of Concord rather than transcendentalist uh, thinkers and visionaries. Um, so, um that, that that but um there, there is an element in, in their 
thinking which is deliberately opposed to all the ways in which a social historian construes a life. A uh, social mm. historian looks at income, looks at the land they own, looks at the people they socialise with, looks at the institutions that formed them, the institutions they contributed to. And paradoxically, transcendentalism is fundamentally anti-institutional. And the kind of heart of Emerson and Thoreau's um, belief system was how to escape precisely those um, conditioning influences. So there is an, an interesting tension between the social historian, which Robert Gross really has combed every possible archive, and he's created these fascinating vignettes of all the citizens, or well, not all of them, but a huge number of the citizens of Concord from, say, 1825 to 1850, uh, we get these kind of mini lives, which which are presented like almost it's like, it's like a kind of um, a kind of virtual reality. Almost the book is terrifically vivid and gives you a really strong experience of what it would be like to be alive in Concord in 1835. Um, uh, but th there is this sort of interesting mismatch between his kind of method of analysing uh, Concord and the belief system of his kind of two main protagonists, Emerson and Thoreau. Were these protagonists, were they, were they visited by many people? Did, sort of, did, did disciples flock to Concord to kind of see these great people or, or did, that, did that also not really kind of happen? No, that did happen. Em Emerson was a huge draw and Emerson was the centre of a, a circle um, in Concord um, uh, of, of disciples. That there is, a, there is a kind of messianic aspect particularly mm. to Emerson's form of transcendentalism, that you sign up for it, you join, you join, you get with the programme, you become an Emersonian and you go out and you deliver Emersonian um, uh, um, visionary speeches <laughs> to whatever Lyceum books you. Thoreau was a more cussed and rather more remote figure and didn't really, he took it, took it a bit more literally. He didn't really didn't want to be co-opted into the, any kind of circle or institution. And even the act of publishing was a bit of a betrayal of his own sense of his inner experience. Um, so he was a genuine um, iconoclast. So, um, so they didn't sort of perform together ever. You, you couldn't sort of go and visit. You didn't them, get the you know, Emerson and Thoreau show. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> Thor Thoreau didn't perform. Um, Thoreau, um, <laughs> Emerson and his obituary talks talks for friends saying, uh, "I like I like Henry. <laughs> He's a great guy, but I'd as soon think of taking his arm uh, as a taking a branch of a tree. <laughs> he was that. He was a cold fish. Would be one way of putting it. Uh, but he was a, a kind of brilliant." Um, anthropologist that he would also analyze um, Indian arrowheads which he would find he was a kind of archaeologist of Concord and he explored the history of Concord uh, whereas Emerson was is in some ways opposed to historical readings um, of, of life that Emerson is all about the future about how you might transform yourself how you might escape the past um, while Th Thoreau was much more interested in, in exploring the layers of the history of Concord, including the black population. In, in Walden, he mentions a couple of characters that he'd heard about who were uh, ex-slaves living quite near where he actually uh, built his hut uh, on Walden Pond. And uh, Gross has tracked down these, these, uh, the, this small black community uh, and given us some more details about their actual lives. So Thoreau identified with pariah figures, outsiders, those who were um, on the margins, whereas Emerson became very central uh, to the whole American enterprise as it evolved in the kind of from the 1840s through to the end of the century. And am I right that Thoreau did that in his work as well, didn't he? He didn't publish very much. And in fact, he started, he ended up thinking, OK, my journals are the real work, which he didn't publish. 
Yes, absolutely. He found publishing was somehow imprisoning, as I suppose all kind of social interaction you engage in can be imprisoning. He's a great naturalist. I mean, he, he would observe as the plants uh, were coming into leaf and the flowers coming into bloom and so on. He would note all these things down. So his vast journals are this, this enormous repository of his observations. And he had that very, very detailed analysis of what was happening in nature, which he would then in Walden interpret in relation to much grander or parable style visions of the world. Um, but uh, he did end up much more a kind of naturalist than uh, a kind of visionary. Um, so towards the end of his life, yes, he, he, he was not publishing. He was just writing his voluminous journals. Mm. Um, and finally, were they, were they taken seriously at the time or do you think their effect has felt more powerfully now? Well, they, they were mocked uh, by some, but um, transcendentalism did become, you know, widely uh, understood as a movement. And uh, it was seen, particularly by religious institutions, as threatening in some ways, because it was a kind of secularization of mystical or religious experience. And it detached the individual from particular church ecclesiastical institutions and suggested they could get a bigger kick uh, be a thrill by experiencing mystical thoughts on their own. Um, so, but Emerson did achieve, yes, great, enormous fame. Uh, and he had correspondences with Thomas Carlyle. When he came to Europe, he was lionized. Uh, and uh, he was a kind of international figure. He was very influential on Nietzsche. Nietzsche looked back to Emerson as somehow the start of his own philosophy deriving from that of Emerson. So there's a, Emerson does enter the mainstream in that way, whereas Thoreau had a huge impact on, on say, Mahatma Gandhi, notion of civil disobedience come, uh, that Gandhi adopted um, uh, in <laughs> the, the, the independence movement of India, derived a lot of principles from Thoreau. So in their different ways, Emerson and Thoreau I mean, certainly uh, were absolutely sort of fundamental to uh, all sorts of ma- mainly kind of protest movement style strands. Um, uh, and um, Thoreau is also celebrated nowadays, particularly as a kind of uh, eco writer, that his work is green. (laughs) It's green in every kind of fibre of its being. Mm. Um, uh, Even Greta Thunberg would uh, see (laughs) Thoreau as an ally in the battle against climate change. Have you been to Concord? Is a sort of a big thing made out of this whole movement today? I feel I've been to Concord, Toby. I really (laughs) feel I've been to 800 pages of uh, <laughs> this book. I not only feel I've been there, I feel I know most of the inhabitants. You time travelled there 150 years ago. I mean, it, it is a site of pilgrimage, but also because of the Minutemen, that this was the, 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 um, the, the battle against the Redcoats on April the 19th of 1775, which was seen as the first shots fired in the American War of Independence, also happened at Concord. So Concord does have this kind of special, rather mythical uh, position in the American mythology um, as the sort of site of independence. So it is really fitting that, that Emerson and Thoreau would um, uh, uh, sort of operate out of Concord. I mean, Thoreau was born there. Emerson's ancestors were born there. So they both had kind of roots in the place. Um, uh, and it is fitting that their cultural declarations of independence happen in the very town where the actual war of independence kicked off.
Well, thank you so much. I think we've learned at least one very useful practical thing, which is that if you want to cut down on coffee, what you should do is read an Emerson essay instead to get you going in the morning. Um, but we've also learned much more than that. Mark, many thanks for talking to us today. Still to come on the show, the afterlife of one of Chaucer's characters, a tech novel about a septic utopia and why we are so fascinated by lighted windows. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to lighted windows, a scene from the outside, let's take a look at the fiction and arts pages in the paper this week, since we're both here. Toby, what's happening in fiction this week then? Um, in fiction, uh, we have BJ Silcox reviewing the Dave Eggers novel, The Every, which is just out. Um, it's uh, a fairly uncompromising review. Um, it's been getting quite a lot of attention on this book, partly because he's Dave Eggers and he's everywhere. Partly mm. because he's done this sort of stunt, um, which is to, to, to not sell the book, not sell the hard copy on Amazon uh, in the US at least. And that's been getting a lot of column inches. BJ's not massively taken with the book, I must say. She's got a very persuasive argument. It's a very interesting piece. So I'd recommend the piece to everybody. Um, she basically feels that he's 
uh, dealing with incredibly serious themes. And he's really good at, at kind of tackling contemporary issues head on. So I'll give you BJ's opening line, which sort of sets up the piece rather perfectly, I think. Forget bangs or whimpers when the offline world finally ends in Dave Eggers' new tech satire, The Every, it ends with a dick joke. There we <laughs> go. It's not what T.S. Eliot said. <laughs> it's not what T.S. Eliot said. And it, it, she just feels that he constantly undercuts himself. So definitely read the piece. You know, you might want to read the book as well. More than one person has actually read BJ's piece and said, I think I rather like the sound of the book, which is, you know, the draw of criticism, <laughs> isn't it? You can you can read an uncompromising, I wouldn't call it a hatchet job, but certainly a minor takedown and then think that was well argued. And now I want to read the book for myself and see see whether actually I agree with it. So we've got that. I'm actually quite pleased with, with this little spread because I like it when pieces talk to each other. We have in the paper this week, which we haven't mentioned, a really good piece by the journalist and the editor-in-chief of Open Democracy, uh, who's called Peter Gig-Hagen, which is about tech bros it's about um mm. jeff, jeff Bezos and peter field so we've got a kind of a nice page on that bounce into a take on eggers and then we've got a review um of mario vargas losa's new novel harsh times the review is by miranda france and and that book is about an earlier era in which another company was having a moment yes and, and not uh, not a tech company but a fruit company not is a tech, right? tech company but a fruit company and the origin of you know the phrase banana republic um anyone who's read 100 years of solitude will know uh about sort of literary takes on the united fruit company and the way in which they pillaged to you know for want of a better word uh latin america and manipulated politics and you know helped to ferment coups in league with the cia Anyway, uh, Vargas Llosa, he's now in his mid-80s. He's written, he's written this book, Harsh Times, about the machinations of this company. Um, and it sounds brilliant. Mm. And then there's, a, there's another, uh, another piece on the same page, which is also about similar themes. It's by Francisco Goldman, who's a, an American author um, and a journalist. And it's a sort of a auto-fiction about his journalism, mostly in South America during the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, in which all these coups were happening, um, partly as a result of the machinations of various American companies and American financial interests. Um, and it's, it's sort of a parallel narrative, both about the brutality of US intervention and also about his own very brutal father. And these two plots and themes are, are interwoven. It sounds very beautifully done, um, not particularly cheerful. So that's fiction. I better ask you what's what's in the arts pages, Lucy. You don't have to, but you can. I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we've got in the arts pages is 600 years after the wife of Bath appeared, we've got the wife of Wilsden, which is a play by Zadie Smith, um, which is being put on in North London. It's part of the Brent. I think Brent was one of London's Council of Culture. It was supposed to be 2020, but that didn't really work. So it's happening this year. Um, and it's it's sort of the wife of Bath adapted and updated, set in a pub. Um, and it sounds absolutely brilliant, frankly. And it and, and the piece is written by Marion Turner, who wrote the uh, that prize-winning biography of Chaucer, A European Life. Um, and she, she she just thinks it's brilliant. Uh, and even if you can't see it in North London, the book has been published, the play has been published. So um, so you can read it and see what you think. And we've also got Colin Grant, great friend of the podcast, on the uh, the film Passing, um, by directed by Rebecca Hall, about um, two black women in 20s America, I think, and one of them passes for white um, and one of them 
mostly doesn't, but sometimes does. Uh, and I think it's about their relationship, but it's also about the the danger and the risk and the, the fear of that whole situation. Colin says at the end, it, it, it shines a light on just the absolute farce of, of race and the way people have behaved about it, you know. And it sounds really, it, it looks very beautiful, I think, because it's, it's shot in, in, in black and white and the, certainly at least the two leads are very beautiful. Uh, and it's very thought-provoking, I think. So that, that sounds like one to watch as well. Now, where are you going to take us, Toby? Uh, well, I, I'm going to take us down a lonely, darkened street at night. Don't be alarmed, there is a purpose to this. Who among us has not walked down a lonely, darkened street at night and glanced up longingly at a lighted room above? A window onto a different world, teeming with life, possibility, story. A world from which we will remain forever kept apart. Well, the cultural historian Peter Davidson has been so struck by this kind of image that he's written an entire book on the subject, creating his own hybrid genre, which blends cultural history with nature writing and place writing, channeled through personal experience, a meander through dusky evenings and different shades of meaning. Susan Owens has reviewed The Lighted Window for the TLS and she joins us now to discuss it. Hello, Susan. Hello. Hi. Thank you for asking me to come on. Thank you for joining us. By the sounds of things, you, you really enjoyed this book. In the wrong hands, I imagine it could be a little bit whimsical or directionless even. So what is it that, that Davidson gets so right? Yes, you're right. It, it is, it is a, a strange idea for a book, or at least it seems to be to begin with. But then as Davidson begins to unfold his story about the lighted window, the the idea of the lighted window, it becomes clear that it's an immense subject uh, that goes, that really runs like a thread through poems and novels and essays and prints and and oil paintings and all sorts of of visual arts, um, not just in Europe, but in the rest of the world as well. And um, so he shows us what a, a big subject it is. But it's not only that, because you say, well, yes, it's a cultural history um, of a sort, but as you say, it's, it's other things as well. And he, it's that, it's the personal voice that he brings to it. And the, the subtitle of the book is Evening Walks Remembered. So you've got these two things going on, that on the one hand, it's a cultural history, but on the other, it's a very personal very idiosyncratic sort of cultural history which is structured around these walks it's very conversational and it's very much about things he remembers it's place writing is 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 part of it so it's very much and and the chapters are organized according to different places so you've got the idea of of northern cities where we might uh, be uh, someone like Princeton um, walking on along the pavements um, getting suspicious looks from people in cars you know what are you doing out on the pavements but and that leads him on to uh, discussions of paintings by artists like Edward Hopper Um, then you get um, a whole chapter about London uh, because it's it's both urban and about the landscape as well. So there's one whole chapter about about the landscape. So different kinds of experiences, different sorts of walks that Davidson is undertaking or or simply remembering and bringing it, bringing his ideas and recollections together in in that way. And when you were reading this, I mean, were you surprised by the the amount of writers and artists who, who have drawn on this motif? 
Yes, I was. I have to say, I, I, I was amazed at what a what a huge theme it's clearly been in in, in art and literature. I, I couldn't quite believe that I hadn't hadn't spotted it already. But that there is something so, as, as you say, there's something so entrancing about this idea of the lighted window seen from outside that you know you'd just break it up entirely if you if you went if you went inside and he begins by early on in the book he talks about Proust and this is what Davidson says he says he's struck by the otherness of the lives glimpsed in the lighted rooms that he sees on one of his evening walks through a city and he wonders if uh, the lamp gilded atmosphere within which they move golden and unctuous like oil is really the same as the thin wintry air in the street outside. Now I think that's a wonderful way of, of bringing it together that sort of magic yeah, quality. Yeah the otherworldliness isn't, isn't it? There's, there's something about that and also the idea it's like a, a picture or a stage set that you're you're looking in on um, and that's something that artists and writers that, you know, of all different kinds have used, but used in in totally different different ways. And it's I think it's Davidson's genius to really bring all this together into into a narrative that's that, that's coherent. He talks about lighted windows in houses. Does he talk about transport as well? Because it always seems to me that train windows, as they go past, are very magical, mm. and planes and buses. Is there any of that, or is it just him moving and looking at static houses? It is partly that, but he he does talk about uh, train windows as well, and that, that equally that beguiling glimpse that we get when we look at a, a tube train going past in the in the dark, whatever. But he's also looking; they're not all, all walks. He also talks about looking out from train windows um, when uh, in the evening when you begin to see lights coming on in houses. So, of course, one particular journey reminds him of uh, a painting in this case by Algernon Newton which is unusually about a a row of terraced houses that has no light in 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 any of the windows and just how sinister this seems that it's almost as though it's not it's not calm as I'd always thought the painting was just a calm painting Davidson actually points out that it looks as though a terrible disaster has happened in this place because it's so it's so unusual so yet they're all different kinds of modes of transport both described and undertaken and um, car journeys he talks wonderfully about what it's like to be looking through the car windscreen at, at landscapes and at um, different settlements as, as he's passing as well so yes practically no stones le- left unturned with the this, this variety of, of the subject the, the the scene about the, the the darkened windows or whatever actually sort of brings me to my next question, which is about disquiet, because you you refer to him, you refer to Davidson as a connoisseur of disquiet, and I wondered if you could sort of say something about the, the kind of the ghostliness and the the sense of disquiet in this book. What what kind of thing is he tapping into? Well, he writes about um, disquiet in different ways, so it can be. There's one description of a of a long walk that well, he's remembering from 30 years before, somewhere near Oxford, where he's walking towards a house that's partly ruined and totally dark. So this idea where there, that there should be a light in the window, but, but there isn't one. And that leads him on to this idea of ghosts and ghosts 
standing for loss and abandonment and uh, a wrong that needs to be righted. So it's a lot about this idea of what you hope to see, but don't. There's a sadness about about light, sometimes about lighted windows, sometimes about unlighted windows. Um, But he also talks a lot about um, American artists, Edward Hopper, um, particularly Lyndon Frederick, and photographers such as Todd Hedo and Gregory Crudson, all of whom take this idea of light, um, little pockets of light in the darkness, not necessarily as being places we'd want to go towards, but places that are um, sad or nostalgic, melancholy, or, or even slightly sinister in some ways. I was thinking about this this theme in relation to earlier this year, and I mean, if I can be as crass to say that I enjoyed much about the lockdown um, we had certainly in Britain, but one of the things I genuinely did enjoy about it was the quietness of the streets at night, going out with friends when, you know, all you could do for a period was maybe meet up with one friend and go for a walk, you certainly couldn't go anywhere. Everyone was in, you know, in the way they're often not in a big city. Um, so, I mean, it really, in a way, it was a kind of golden golden period for connoisseurs of the light of window. I, mean, I, I, I do remember spending a lot of time just walking down darkened streets, looking in. Um, and I just, yeah, it, 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 obviously it's a complete coincidence the book has sort of come out around this sort of time, but it, it does sort of feel like that, that trope is having its moment. I don't know if that's something that, 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 you, that you'd also experienced during, during the kind of lockdowns. Oh, well, I'm, I'm someone who I'm, I'm so nosy about this subject that I, I go out <laughs> deliberately at the dusk and, and stare in few, through people's windows. But no, you're, you're quite right. It was, a, it was a, a golden age. It does seem to be an interesting coincidence. It has come out at just the right moment and also the right time of, of year. Now it's, it's November and getting dark so, so early that we can't help but see those actually usually very welcoming lights coming out of people's windows. I, I, was, I was thinking of my own favourite depictions, um, and this, this is not a particularly highbrow one, but actually I've always loved the way the children's author Shirley Hughes depicts the front and backs of houses. You sort of, you've got to get these little glimpses into cheerfully chaotic family lives. Um, and, and there's also obviously um, sort of the classic film noirs, uh, most obviously Fritz Lang's The Women in the Window, um, which I sort of had to look up again, it'd been a long time since I'd seen it. But I sort of feel like all those wonderful 40s and 50s noirs is filled with characters on darkened streets set apart from the light of worlds inside. I just wondered if you had any personal favourite depictions yourself. Actually one that Davidson talks wonderfully about which is Eric Revilius's series High Street which are these wonderful brilliantly lit shop fronts all different kinds of, of shops but really the theme in his book, it's all about the, the a quiet kind of strangeness, which is there in any lighted window. And he talks about it brilliantly with the, the high street. He talks about a particular a chemist's shop. So the, the light is shining through this great flagon of liquid backlit. But there's something rather melancholy about bare trees and a moon just just above the um, the image. So there's always something which is a little bit um, kind of gives another dimension to it. It's kind of curious. There's always a melancholy undertow to, to these images. You talk about how cleverly he weaves this all together. 
Um, and then I think you, you earlier alluded to the sort of the rousing conclusion. I, I wondered, could you read us a little section from that just to kind of give us, give us a flavour of what Davidson's doing in this book? Yes, in the conclusion, it's almost as though until this point, he's been very much on the outside looking in, or that's, that's the idea at the heart of the book. But right at the end of the book, he's walking back home through quiet Oxford Street. So actually the book ends as it begins with this quiet, quiet nighttime walk. And uh, there are stars lit. And he says that he's describing the walk. And uh, so I'll read from now. He says, light seen across water at night so often evokes longing for a paradise just out of reach. Reflected moonlight and starlight intensify it by bringing the sky down into the estranging river. Coleridge's famous gloss on the rhyme of the ancient mariner hides the image of a great house lit for a festival within its expression of grief in isolation, in separation from the sky and its starry lords. And there's a quote um, from Coleridge. He yearneth towards the journeying moon and the stars that still sojourn, yet still move onward. And everywhere the blue sky belongs to them and does their appointed rest and their native country and their own natural homes, which they enter unannounced as lords that are certainly expected. And yet there is a silent joy at their arrival. This has a response in Gerard Manley Hopkins's The Starlight Night, which positions the gazer at the lighted windows of the night sky. Quote, the bright boroughs, the circle citadels, as one who is watchful for the smallest showings forth of the glories of paradise in glimmering light, in dew, in the flickering of leaves or pollen, the glistening of feathers. By the end of the intricate sonnet, the starry sky has become a barn filled with the sheaves of God's harvest, and the stars themselves are the brilliant rents through which the glory of the court of heaven shines on the attentive watcher on earth. Then a quote from Hopkins, this peace bright paling shuts the spouse Christ home, Christ and his mother and all his hallows. Now it doesn't quite end there, but I think I'll, I'll give the, the reader something else to, um, to, to look for when they, 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 come, they come to the book. But uh, I love the way it, it ends with just one thing, uh, reminding Davidson of another, of another, and that's how the book works really that's its method how uh, Coleridge reminds him of Hopkins reminds him of Heaney reminds him of of something else and one thing segues into another and I think the one of the central ideas and which comes out at the end is this idea of imagination and, and memory having all of these poems and works of art in your mind it, it make, they're, they're like the, they're like lighted windows in themselves so they're a way of illuminating the world around us that we don't need external lighted windows. We've got these internal ones that our imaginations and memories create. Our memories are our own darkened streets with these windows all around us. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely image, isn't it? It's a really it is. image. Thank you so much, Susan. That's been incredibly um, illuminating and interesting. Thank you very much for asking me.
That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Mark Ford and Susan Owens. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Toby Lishtig and from me, goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.